Episode 19, Refugee Crisis with Wes Magruder. Welcome to Productive Ministry, where it is our goal to help pastors do the things they have to do so they can do the things they're called to do. Today's guest is Wes Magruder. He is a pastor and a well-known champion for refugees. During his career, he has written so many articles uh, for so many different publications on the issue, and he is currently president of the Refugee Services of Texas. In today's episode, we learn why the refugee crisis and illegal immigration are two separate issues, how the church is uniquely qualified to help immigrants, and how evangelism and social work go together, and so much more. This episode is going to challenge you in many ways. I already know that. So let's just jump right in with Wes Magruder. Welcome to Productive Ministry. Our guest today is Wes Magruder. Wes has been a pastor with United Methodist Church, and he's currently working here in Dallas, but he's also worked in London uh, and in Cameroon. And the best part about Wes is that he has this incredible heart for refugees, which is why I wanted you on the show today. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So what were you doing in Cameroon? Well, uh, we were United Methodist missionaries, my wife and I, and I was a pastor and actually felt a call to mission work. And so my wife and I uh, raised our hands and said, we'd like to be considered for that. And they accepted our application and sent us to Cameroon, and we spent four years there. It was wonderful. Just absolutely loved it. We had small children. They spent four really important years of their life in Cameroon. It was wonderful. Was there a pro- specific project that you were working on there, a goal for the mission? Well, the United Methodist Church was not present in Cameroon up until the year 2000, and a person from Cameroon came to the U.S. to study, became a United Methodist, and he wanted to take the church back to Cameroon, and so he, he went back and started churches on his own. At some point, the United Methodist denomination decided to support that work. Uh, we were among the first missionaries they sent to essentially nurture the work that was already going on, so I hmm. was responsible for 17 or 18 churches, and I had to trained pastors, and we started new churches, and it was just a flurry of really exciting work and ministry. Great time. Have have you always been passionate about working with different people groups? Actually, that passion happened right right after I got out of seminary. We had a chance to go to London. I was a pastor at a British Methodist church for two years, and that experience probably really shaped me in terms of being plopped in a different culture and falling in love with the challenges of that and the richness of diversity, cultural diversity. And so, yeah, I think it was really that London experience that really made us sensitive to other cultures. And so we were ready when we felt like God was calling us to, to missions work. Yeah, that, I think that's always been like one of my favorite things about living in the city is just, I mean, the whole world is right there. You know, and a a huge city like London, even even more so. So one of the things that I know about you is that you have a a really big heart for refugees. Like this is a big topic with you. And I I read article after article um, and, and blog post 
after blog post. I think that this is an important conversation for the church to have right now uh, here in the United States because of all of the difficulties that we're having politically with the idea of refugees. And I, I was just wondering, as we start this conversation, could you speak into that a little bit? Sure. Um, and, and one thing I like to always begin with is to make some distinctions between uh, different types of persons. Because what I've discovered is when we talk, when the word refugee comes up, sometimes different people groups get conflated in that, which shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, we t- when you use the word refugee, you're talking about a person who has had to flee their home country, their country of origin, because of the threat of persecution or violence. Regardless of the reason, whether there's a war that has broken out or they are a part of a, an ethnic group or a religion that is being persecuted, once you cross a border, you are considered a refugee. If you have remained inside your country, you fled your, your city and you've gone to another city, you're not a refugee. You're, you're internally displaced. Mm-hmm. But a refugee is someone who's actually crossed the border. And according to the UN, there's over 21 million refugees in the world at the moment, which, by the way, is the biggest number uh, since World War II. 21 million? Yes, 21 wow. million. I didn't, I didn't realize that, that there were that many refugees in the world yes Yes. and i could break down how you know what parts of the world where that's the worst Uh, obviously the syrian crisis is on everybody's mind right now and has been Mm -hmm. for several years but actually right at this particular moment as we speak on this podcast the the growing new crisis is in south sudan the greatly because of a famine and the fact that the government is unable to feed its own people south sudanese are are flocking to Kenya and Uganda at the moment. And so hmm. if we're not careful, that will be the new largest crisis of the moment. So yes. so to go back to the idea of distinguishing a refugee from an immigrant, an immigrant is a, is a word with a much broader implication. It's anybody who you know, has gone to another country for whatever reason. And sometimes when we talk about refugees, I think people confuse that with the idea of immigration and illegal immigration. Right. Um, but people who come as refugees into the U.S. are coming as legal immigrants. And to come into the U.S. as a refugee is a very extensive process. Now, part of that is just because of a geographic luck of the draw. If we, as a country, were located next to Syria, then we might have a whole lot of undocumented refugees fleeing into our country because they could just cross the border. Mm-hmm. But because we are so far removed from the major world hotspots where refugees are, then the only way we accept refugees into our country at the moment is through a very extensive process, the refugee resettlement process, which is handled by the, by the federal government, by the State Department. There's a, a department that handles all of that. Uh, again, most of the world's hotspots for refugees are in other places in the world, and they're separated by an ocean and, and such. And people who come from Mexico are not refugees. They're coming as immigrants, perhaps for economic uh, reasons or, or other reasons, or to join family. So I always like to point out that when we talk about refugees, I really am talking about those who have come into the country legally. They've come through a process. And, and of course, when they arrive, they are carrying um, an 
employee identification number so they can work right away. Mm -hmm. um, after they've been in the country for a year, they can apply for a green card. And after they've been in the country for five years, they can apply to become citizens. And, and most of them do. I really appreciate you making that distinction because immediately I, I think that part of the response, I mean, there's there's several reasons and we're probably going to get into all of them, why why people are, are so fearful of this idea of, of taking in refugees. And, mm -hmm. and But I, I think that there is definitely a distinction between what you're saying, immigration, and what it means to be a refugee and what the, the process right. uh, or the vetting process is there. So I think right. that... That's an important distinction. So we're yes. not talking about people, not all people who immigrate are refugees. Correct. Right. Correct. Right. So. And then there is another category that I should just point out, even though there aren't very many of them, and that's the asylee. An asylee is is someone who has fled their country, perhaps perhaps for the same reasons as a refugee, but they've not gone through any kind of refugee vetting process and. And, and perhaps that's because of the urgency of their situation. And so they may, so they, they come to the country and once they arrive, then they claim asylum. Right. And there's a process by which you can do that. It's a very difficult process. I know, I know I'm a friend with a, a lawyer who specifically works with representing asylees and they come because they've been tortured. And, and sometimes these are countries which we may have good relationships with. But, and there's not a recognized refugee crisis, but there is repression going on. And so they will make their way to the country, and once they get within our borders, then they go to an embassy, or they go and they claim asylum. And it's a very lengthy process. It can take up to two years. And, of course, um, their rights are really restricted because they have no legal standing in the country. They can't work. Um, that requires a, a whole different level of ministry and, and kind of care. But, um, but in general, my work has been with those people who are coming uh, through the refugee process. And then just to make one more kind of distinction is just to point out that in Europe, for example, there's, there was a lot of anxiety about the terrorist attacks in Paris back in the fall of 2015, if you recall. Right. And part of that was because the claim was that at least one of the bombers had come into the country as a refugee. Well, in, in Europe, because uh, small landmass, large, long borders, um, many of the refugees who made their way to Germany, for example, there over a million refugees went to Germany. But they, they went to Germany not as not through any official process. They, they actually crossed on foot over the border after walking all the way through Turkey and over the mountains and into Germany. And so... Yes, I recognize that in Germany and in France and some of those other European countries, they do have a different problem. And it is very possible that that terrorist, terrorist agents could have slipped in with those crowds crossing the borders. Okay? Right. So I recognize, I think they're, but they, they're dealing with a, a very different problem than us. We don't have anybody sneaking in. <laughs> you know, fortunately, we don't have the same problem. Um, instead, the only Syrians we're taking in are people who have been sitting in a refugee camp for years uh, and have finally, you know, the U.S. has finally said, okay, we will relieve some of your burden. We'll take some of these and resettle them. They go through that vetting process, and then they come to the U.S. So I always try to explain that we're very concerned about the security of our country, too. 
Um, anybody who works in refugee resettlement is. Um, yeah. But we're not, we're not, we don't have the same problem as Germany, France, some of the other European countries. And there is a lot of, like the, the pushback mm-hmm. is specifically right now because it's the, the hot button issue is, right. is terrorism. Right. Um, and people are fearful of that. Yes. And, and that, I think that that, that, that fear kind of seeps into all aspects of our society, uh, including the church. Um, and it certainly starts to, to define laws and it, and it becomes this, uh, this line in the sand where you, you feel like you have to pick a side. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, yeah. but the other, but the other issue I think that people talk, I hear people talk about is this idea of, um, assimilation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and refugees not, or there would be a problem if foreigners, whether they're refugees or immigrants or whatever, and they, they don't assimilate into the culture or they start changing laws and you see like all those Facebook posts like, oh, well, you know, they're fighting Sharia law in Ohio and, and in Oklahoma and, and in all of those, all of those places. Right. How do you respond to that in the work that you do? My take on it is that in my experience with individual refugees and refugee families is that they very much have a desire to assimilate. And, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll take that word. I don't know. I don't know how I like that word assimilate, but my observation is that when let's just take a typical Syrian family, when they arrive, they want to learn English. Mm-hmm. They try very hard to learn English. They're looking for jobs as quickly as they can. They, um, they really feel as if, and I think almost every refugee you'll talk to feels like they've been given a remarkable second chance at, at a life in which they're confident that their children have a real future. Right. And so they feel very strongly about becoming Americans. And, and if you were just to look at the number of refugees who go on to complete the citizenship process and do it so proudly, and you know, to, to date I haven't followed one particular person's journey from the moment they entered all the way till five years later they get their citizenship. But you know, they'll often, they'll invite you to their, you know, naturalization ceremony. They'll, they'll want the people who were there with them in the very beginning to be with them when they become citizens. So I see a lot more of the assimilation happening. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do recognize that, um, and ironically, it's not the Syrians who I see this happening to. I see this with other, some of the other refugee groups uh, where they tend to live in community together and stick right. together and stay together and create sort of an enclave. And so in Dallas, <laughs> my observation is that the Burmese have done that. Um, there's a very large Burmese population up in Carrollton, which is a, a suburb to the north of, of Dallas. And there are pockets where there are neighborhoods that are almost entirely Burmese. They, their life is centered around the church. And so there's a Burmese, there's several Burmese churches led by Burmese pastors. And so, um, I think there is a great comfort in being with people from your community. And it's very hard to, you know, I'll be frank, it's hard to judge that too harshly because, quite frankly, when I lived in, when we lived in Cameroon, there were times when we just wanted to be around Americans. Right. <laughs> you know, we had worked for uh, all week long and tried to speak French and tried to be Cameroonian. And, there's something about being around people who speak your language and know you and know your culture that's right. very relaxing. 
It's so. like when I go to other states and I run into another Texan. There you go. It's exactly. like the best thing ever. <laughs> like Mexican food or Texan. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I, that's why I find it hard to to be too critical of people. I, I understand how comforting that is and how helpful that can be. But again, my observation is that is what refugees want. Now, right. I think that the unique role that the church can and should be playing in the lives of refugees who are resettled in America, I think that we play a leading role in helping that assimilation to happen. Though I wouldn't call it assimilation. I would just simply say, I think the one thing that we as a church can offer is we can offer friendship. And I think it's friendship that I think really makes the difference. A friendship that doesn't demand that you become like me, but a friendship that says... I'm going to open myself up to get to know you, and I want to accept you on your terms. And so tell me about yourself. Tell me your story, and then I'll tell you my story. Right. And so that's one of the things I we're trying to do at my particular church at this moment. I, I actually have a number of people since I arrived at this church who wanted to work with refugees alongside me. Some of the things we're doing are very basic like that. They're not, they're not giving people... Uh, physical things is just the gift of friendship. Right. And I think what you'll see over the long run is if in the long run, the church in America is welcoming and open and friendly to refugees, that will create a stronger, more diverse, more resilient and assimilated population. Right. right. That's, that's, that's what I believe. And, and I see it happening even in Dallas because I'm, I'm really, I think the city of Dallas has done a pretty good job of, of being that kind of community. And I will say that this is true across the spectrum theologically of churches. Um, you think of Dallas as kind of the heart of, you know, the Vatican of the Bible Belt, right? Yeah, <laughs> the, buck, the buckle of the Bible yeah, Belt. The buckle of the Bible yeah, Belt, right. Yeah. You know, very, um, but I'm telling you when, when, and I, I do have a unique position to see the number of different kinds of churches and faith organizations involved in refugee work here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And it's really surprising because it's not just the main lines and what some people would consider the more liberal churches, but the conservative churches, the evangelical churches are very much involved. Every type of church. So I, I guess one thing that I haven't talked about is the fact that I for the last uh, five years, have been on the board of directors of Refugee Services of Texas, and uh, or RST, as we call ourselves. And RST is a refugee resettlement agency. That's what we do. We, we welcome refugees, get them set up, get them in their first homes, help them get jobs. Mm-hmm. And we have five offices around the state. So we're just located in Texas. And it's been really exciting. Every time something happens where refugees are in the news, whether good or bad, whether it's positive press or negative press, people of all faiths and all sides of whatever spectrum you want to find rush and start calling and say, how can we help? What we can do is sending money. Um, whether it's you know the administration wanting to cut down the number of refugees. Well, we just got all sorts of support. And, and I've talked to our CEO, and he says that this refugee, the fact that there was a, you know, the administration has made it very clear that they're trying to restrict the number of refugees coming into the country. Um, he says that churches 
have by and large stood against that and have said, wow. we, want, we want more refugees here because we feel a God-called kind of mission to welcoming refugees. So I find that very encouraging. Yeah, that, I think that that is very encouraging. Mm-hmm. So um, I have about 50 questions that popped in my head <laughs> as you were talking. And I, I just want to I I backtrack a little bit um, because I think that there are a couple of things that have happened in the church that have made it very difficult to do what you say, which is you say, like, op- offer open friendship, right, to, to people. But I think it started, I first became aware of it in the 80s, right, where people were saying how multiculturalism is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And that was a big struggle. And now we don't use that term multicultural anymore. Right. Uh, what we talk with the word we use now is globalization mm-hmm. um, and how and how globalization is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people fear the fact that there might be things culturally, if I can mm-hmm. frame the argument, that, that people practice that are immoral or ungodly and have to be addressed. How do you, you know, in one hand say, well, I'm, I'm going to have open friendship with people, uh, but at the same time, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think what you might be getting at here is the fact that some of our refugees are Muslim. And so I think maybe that's kind of what you're driving at, because actually, surprisingly, you know, I would say at any given moment, the actual refugees who are actually coming into the country probably are, the numbers are, they're more Christian than Muslim. Okay. But that's because they're coming from other places. For example, in the last couple of years, we have a huge number of refugees coming from the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is an ongoing, another crisis, a humanitarian crisis going on in the world. Most of the Congolese who are coming are Christian, and they're, they're, they're actually more active Christians than most Americans. Let's just be right. really honest there. <laughs> and then, as I mentioned before, you have a large number of Burmese who are Christian. So I think maybe part of the anxiety comes when you talk about Muslim refugees. And, and certainly that's, that's true lately. I really think that part of the reason, obviously, that we're wanting to restrict Syrians is because a number of them are Muslim. Not right. all of them. Uh, actually, there's quite a few also who are Christian. But right. our fear is Islamic terrorism, right? That's, right. that's the thing. And, and then all the things that supposedly that come with Islam, whether that's Sharia law or the right, you know, rights having to do with mercy killings and all that stuff. Right. So, and and right now, like, that's the issue right now. In the 80s, it was a different issue. And 20 years from now, it'll be a different issue. It'll be be multiculturalism, globalization. It'll be called something else then. Right. Always that that pervasive thought that exists that says, you know, if we accept or try and love people, then we're accepting the things about them that we are against. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I obviously don't agree with that. But my observation, again, working with families or individuals here as refugees, um, I find that I think that some of those things that we're afraid of, some of those practices you were talking about, I think they're more cultural. Most of them are cultural rather than religious, really. Um, I think this whole idea of, for example, the way men treat women, 
I think you, you, one of the things I've, conclusions I've come to, because I've also done quite a bit of interfaith work with Muslims, is I realize that it depends on where you come from. It's the culture or society you come from that determines male-female relations rather than just religion alone. And mm-hmm. so it all depends on where the, the family has come from. That's what determines how they relate to each other. And again, I would emphasize that when someone comes here, they want to adapt to the laws and the customs of this country. I don't see people coming and thinking, oh, good, now I can create an Islamic theocracy here in <laughs> Dallas. They <laughs> Seriously, they come here as, oh, thank God that... I've been given a second chance, and I'm coming to live in the United States of America, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful to them for allowing me to be here. I'm grateful for this chance, and so I, I'm going to do everything I can to live and abide by their laws, learn their customs, and that by far is the default response. I don't want to pigeonhole you, but you know, are you saying like whenever we have those those fears, they're they're essentially unfounded because. From your experience, and you, and I just want to reiterate the fact, this is what you do. You work with refugees, mm-hmm. and so you're you do not have an uninformed opinion. You're not you're not like a pundit who's just spouting off at the mouth. Right. But your experience is right. um, those things that we're afraid of is not the majority of the people who are seeking refuge in, in our country. Correct. And I will also say that when a refugee is chosen accepted into the resettlement program, they don't always have a choice in the country they're going to end up in. Sometimes you have refugees who are assigned to America. They, they have not necessarily chosen to come to America. They may end up going to Canada. They may end up going to, believe it or not, Iceland or Norway, which always cracks me up when I hear of Africans being sent to Norway. I think, oh my, how's that, how's that going to work? So you, you have to understand that the resettlement program as it is maintained and run by the United Nations in conjunction with these other Western nations, you don't exactly choose where you want to go. It's not like, you know, this is more, you've been given a gift and now the U.S. says they'll take you. Do you want to go? And they say, well, yes, I'll go. I will say, though, that it is possible for refugees to come to to America and not assimilate and to not feel like they fit in. And, but that's, I think that's because of often perhaps a negative response they have received from a community or from certain individuals. And, and what happens, I think the thing that we have to recognize is that refugees come sometimes with a great amount of psychological trauma that they have encountered in, in a war situation uh, of losing loved ones, maybe perhaps seeing loved ones uh, murdered right in front of their eyes. They come with trauma, and if they're not met and accepted and welcomed um, in a generous way, that there can be negative ramifications. That's why, mm-hmm. if, that's why, to me, it's so important for the church to get involved with this work, because we're on the front lines here of, of welcoming people who are in some ways fragile and vulnerable. You know, you could even, I suppose, <laughs> you could even say that this work is in some way, some ways anti-terrorist, because... We are creating positive relationships with people who then, when they share their story, their story is 
wow, America was not what I expected. Um, yeah. I thought they may not accept me for who I am, but they do. And they love me and they're, they're kind to me and they're welcoming. And so, you know, to me, that's, that's part of what this work is. So I could see, sure, I could see somebody arriving in a community that doesn't accept them. And that might have negative ramifications, right? But that would be true of you and you or I. That's true. We yeah. moved to Oklahoma and they didn't accept us because we were from Texas, you know? Yeah. Well, I have no comment on that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it, it's so good that you say that. It's something that uh, I'm a pretty compassionate guy, but I never really think about the the trauma Right. Like the fact that these people have to flee their countries, Mm -hmm. that's what it means. You defined it. That's what it means to be a refugee, because Mm -hmm. something has happened to them. They have a lot of needs. Right. Both like physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. Um, How do you how do you begin assessing and meeting those needs? So can I tell you a little a quick story then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I was involved with a, with a house church, it was a few years ago, it was at a ministry of the larger church that I served. And we started a house Sunday night worship service uh, in an apartment complex. And it turned out this is where I really, really got immersed in the refugee culture because in this particular complex, there were a lot of African refugees mm-hmm. that were living there. And um, we always we gather first and eat a meal together, and then we'd have a very laid-back kind of worship service. And so this one particular Sunday evening, I was introduced to a young man who was new. He had just arrived in the country. I think he'd only been in the States for two weeks. Uh, his name was Mohammed, a uh, young, young guy, full of energy, life. He spoke pretty good English. He ate with us, and obviously he was Muslim, but... He participated in our worship service. He he sang with us, and, and so we asked him to him to teach us a song. So he taught us a song in Arabic, and he participated in our Bible study. And then we always conclude with communion. And so I was trying to be really sensitive to the fact that he was Muslim. So I turned to him and said, uh, "Muhammad, we're about to have communion, so I don't expect you to participate." And he said, "No, I want I want communion." Um, he said. Can I, can I pray over the food for you? And I said, okay. So in Arabic, he blessed the elements for us. Wow. <laughs> and then I served him communion. First time I've ever served a Muslim communion, um, which was really, was really a unique experience. Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I, um, later in the week... I came back to the complex to visit him because I wanted to visit him in his apartment, which is what I sometimes did for new people. And I, I knocked on his door with a friend, and we went in, and we just asked him you know, if we could sit and chat. And it was, it was mid-morning, and it was obvious he had not gotten up out of bed yet. So, But he got out of bed for us. He let us in. He gave us something to drink. And I asked him to tell us his story. He said, when I was 14, got up one morning, and my brother and I uh, walked to school in our village. He said, and during the school day, he said, um, all of a sudden we heard a commotion and we looked out the windows and some men on horseback were riding through town, setting all the buildings on fire and shooting everything that moved. 
He said, so I grabbed my little brother. I went and found my little brother, grabbed him by the hand, and we ran out the back door of the school, and we ran away from the town. And he said, and we kept running, and we never went back, Whoa. ever. We, he said he's, he had never gone back home since that moment. It, and they ran and walked hundreds of miles until they made it across the border into Kenya. Hmm. He lost his brother in the camp. He doesn't know where his brother is to this day. Uh, but at the age of 21, after, after living in the camp for seven years, he got an opportunity to be resettled in America by himself. So it was my way of understanding he was one of the lost boys of Sudan, um, which is you know one of the stories some of us Americans are familiar with. Right. Um, there were a great number of his generation who did this very same thing. Well, when he told me this story, I just said, wow, you know, I said, you just seem, you just seem so happy and full of joy, you know, and I'm just surprised because that's just such a hard story. And he said, well, I'm not always joyful. He said, there are some days I have a hard time getting out of bed and I have nightmares every night. Every night I have nightmares. Wow. And I think it was, you know, that story for me that really, <laughs> I mean, it's a story I can't forget. Part of the reason I do what I do is because of people like Muhammad, knowing his story, knowing how, what he wakes up to every morning, every day of his life, he wakes up to that. And knowing that, yes, he's in a better place now. He's in a, you know, and as I watched him over the months, he got a job. Um, eventually he was able to buy a car for himself. He got a girlfriend. I mean, he was able to, to grow and begin to, yeah, he's begin to experience and, and have a more solid and stable life. Um, unfortunately, you know, I've lost contact with him. That was many years ago, but to me, it was just simply the act of tell me your story and listening and, then beginning to understand that when you encounter a refugee, someone you don't know, just to just to keep in mind that you don't know the full extent of their uh, life story, the sorrow that's there, the pain that's there, and how important it must be to him or to any refugee to see an American with a smile on their face or some kind of kind word, some kind of welcoming gesture. That that just yeah. means so much. So. For me, it's, that's really important. Um, and every refugee I've ever met, I consider to be one of the bravest persons I've ever met. You Because know? all you do is, they're already a survivor. They've escaped from a bad situation, and they've made it here. That means they have, they've done more in their lives than we've ever you know, contemplated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a, such an intense story. I'll be thinking about that later tonight. So thanks a lot for that. Um, <laughs> probably it seems extreme for us, but like we have to remember there are apparently 21 million people mm-hmm. who, right. who are, who are dealing with similar issues or that sadness, you know? Right. And right. yeah, as a, as a, as a Christian, I think Jesus is the answer. You know, we have a story and we have a message that can absolutely help. But as a pragmatist, I also recognize that, you know, there are there are genuine needs. How do you balance being an evangelist, the Great Commission, with it just being like social work? 
in my capacity as the president of the board of directors with RST, um, I consider that um, nonprofit work. I consider that work that I'm very clear. I understand that you know that is not something I do for evangelist evangelism's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, there's some very clear parameters by what RST does. They receive federal funds. Uh, there are some very clear restrictions on what that organization can do. But I would say that in my theological framework, my basic understanding of or one of the phrases I use, especially here at this church, is that I believe that, that what God desires for the world is shalom. Um, shalom is my operating principle. That, to me, is the summation of what salvation is all about. But Shalom is a great word because it doesn't mean just peace. It means abundance and wholeness and maturity. Um, and so as a, just as an aside, as a Methodist, John Wesley talked about going on to perfection. That is the work of sanctification that grace does in us. Mm-hmm. You know, once we're justified, we go on to perfection. It's, we're sanctified. And so another reason why that word's important to me, because one way of understanding perfection is the act of maturity. The, the, the idea that we become more mature as we grow in faith, right? Mm-hmm. So I, if I understand that God's desire for this world is shalom, then I feel like whatever I do, first of all, that all my work, all my life work must be oriented to, towards God's shalom. And God's shalom is, is holistic. It's not, it's not just the spirit. It's not just the body. It's not just the soul. It's, it's comprehensive and it's holistic. And so I feel like I believe that anything I can do that, that works towards God's shalom is divine work. It's, it's participating in that, even if it is not directly evangelistic, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, also have a, I also have been profoundly challenged by some of my interfaith work to reconsider you know, what it means that, that there, are, there are other religions in the world and is our, is, what is our, my primary goal? I mean, I understand my, the Great Commission, I mean, the Great Commandment to me is sort of my guiding light there. In other words, love the Lord your God, but also love your neighbor as yourself. And so right. to me, when I look at my neighbor, if my neighbor is a practicing Muslim and he or she finds great meaning there, then I simply love them for who they are. And I don't attempt to change them or change what they believe unless our relationship gets to a point where we can have conversations that would go that direction. Right. Um, That's a a completely different topic for something else. But I I guess for me, um, I let the great commandment of Jesus be my guiding light in this. And that's how I go forward. I, I see myself as primarily motivated by the act of loving my neighbor when it comes to refugees. You know, you are, you are meeting their needs, but, I mean, you, you told me a story about a Bible study that you were having in right, exactly. some apartments. So, like, we recognize that that's, that that's mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to me that Christians seem to, like, as a people, we are very excited about going to places and doing missionary work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we think about 
doing those things like this idea of social justice at home, we really struggle with that. Uh, yes. As a, which, which has always, which has always amazed me, you know? So I don't, you know, I think it gets to the idea of holistic salvation. Uh, this is one of the biggest things in my own life. If you look at the long trajectory of my life, I grew up in a very fundamentalist evangelical uh, church. And I think that what I struggled with the most and have struggled, what well, I struggled then and have tried to address in my life going forward is I felt like there was a, a great emphasis on the spiritual, on the soul, the individual soul, to the great neglect of the rest of salvation, which I understand to be holistic and concerns the body and concerns the emotions and the mind, um, as well as the community. And I just think that uh, talking in sweeping broad generalizations that American Christianity has focused too much on individual you know, the state of the individual salvation of souls um, mm-hmm. at the neglect of all these other things. And I think there'd be a great healing if we could once again uh, put things in their proper place and see things from a holistic. So when I was in Cameroon, somebody else told me this. It was a phrase, and I can't remember which missiologist used it, but uh, talking about the, um, the whole gospel for the whole self. I think that's what the, the phrase, the whole gospel for the whole self. Mm-hmm. which is a way of talking about, you know, recognizing that some of the early missionaries just focused on getting you to heaven. So, you know, have you prayed the sinner's prayer or been baptized or whatever they felt like was the, you know, the demarcation uh, at, the ex- at the expense of everything else. So, that, Okay, so um, that's, really, that's really good stuff. And I'm going to ask you to do something here. It might be an impossible sure. task. And you can refuse it and we can just move on. But you talk about holistic salvation. And I'm wondering if you can give me just like a brief uh, theological working of that. What does that mean in terms of the way that we view salvation? And I know that's a lot to ask, but... I can try. I can try. It's going to be a little bit vague. (laughs) That's okay. Because I haven't thought about that. You didn't... uh, This is popping up on me quickly, but I would say that it means that it has to do with uh, being being in a healthy relationship with God, okay? So that's your, your spiritual, I mean, it touches on many things, but first of all, a healthy relationship with God, and we understand that that happens um, through through grace by faith, right? You know, yeah. um, but it also means a healthy relationship with ourselves so that there is psychological health, Okay, that there is a sound mind in which we're not afraid of reason and using mm-hmm. our rational minds and using logic. Uh, we're not afraid of our imaginations. And so we express our creativity and art um, and, and writing and, and dance and music. We, we're not afraid of the creativity. In fact, that's a major way in which we image, uh, that's how the image of God is reflected in us. We're also in healthy relationship with other people both to those whom we are close to, friends, family, etc., but also to those whom we are not necessarily close to, but we are in healthy relationship with them. That means that we, we love them according to the golden rule, as Jesus puts it. It also means that we're in relationship with all of creation. So I would expand that to mean 
with the physical world, the natural environment, with animals and plants. I mean, this sort of gets out to that co- a cosmic view, um, because mm-hmm. frankly, if God created the world and said it was good and gave us a sort of responsibility, divine responsibility to care for it, then we need to be in a, in a good relationship with the earth. And, you know, again, another topic for another day is how are we doing on that? Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Five different that? podcasts, birth from this one, you're going to be a frequent guest. But, but, I uh, think, but I think salvation, I think if you're talking about God's shalom, then shalom is essentially being in right relationship with all those different spheres of life. Do you feel that as, as Christians, especially as Christian leaders, that when we're approaching our congregation or we're thinking about our community, we should be thinking about helping them on all the, the relationship with God, the relationship with self, the relationship with others, the relationship with creation, that those are all things that we should be discipling people in? I, boy, I don't know if this is a trap you're trying to pull me into, no. but <laughs> no, I'm I just, say yes. Yeah. I say yes because that's the life of discipleship. A so. true disciple then, a mature going on to perfection disciple is actively seeking to be in good relationship with all those spheres of life. And so, yes, I think that a a Christian leader is is doing that. Now, that's a lot of different things. And so I think part of it has to do with context, where you you and your congregation are, or particularly your congregation, where are they? And my observation is that some congregations have overemphasized one sphere at the expense of others. And so, you know, a, a true, truly wise Christian leader would find ways to address that imbalance. Right. And I think that's what I'm always trying to do is figure out where is the imbalance. And so, yes, there are times when I will, I will preach about a social justice issue. And I don't feel guilty because I haven't talked about your heart, you know, right. or how much you love Jesus, but I feel like what I'm doing is trying to talk about the life of discipleship, you know, in all of its spheres. And again, one of the, I've preached frankly on refugees several times at this church and at other churches. And I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel like that I've crossed some kind of line uh, because I feel like this is a part, how we treat refugees is a part of the the life of discipleship. There's implications that are very important. Yeah. So that's how I would answer that, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I know I basically asked you to, you know, build a systematic theology (laughs) right off the cuff. (laughs) But, but, you know, I think it's important to understand your paradigm because that speaks to, to who you are and what your approach is. And I think that the church needs some different thoughts about how to deal with refugee issues because refugees are everywhere. Refugees don't just settle in large cities, but they settle, they settle in rural communities and small towns. And, you know, we're called to, as churches, reach out to those communities. You know, our temptation is always going to be to say, well, step number one, you know, we need to five pillars of salvation or whatever it is. And, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and salvation is is a really important thing to talk about, and 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 to, um, you know, that's a big part of the Great Commission for sure. You know, that's that is the Great Commission, but also recognizing that there's a need there, uh, and that that Christ doesn't just answer the salvation issue on a person, 
but you know he can also help produce fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness right. goodness faithfulness right. gentleness and self-control right. we can we can disciple them into that and we can we can do more than just we can never just stop with with the the beginning of the story which is have yes. a relationship right. with Jesus Christ you know right so and, and you know it's important and i think this is important to note I, this population when you talk about refugees I think we as Christians need to be very sensitive also just to their frame of mind and, and to recall that some of some refugees are here because they've been persecuted for their religion. So what good is it, if you think this through, how would you feel if you became a refugee because of your Christian belief mm-hmm. and you had to go live in another country and the, your first experience is someone coming up to you and trying aggressively to convert you, you know, mm-hmm. that that's, how does that make you feel? And so all I try to do is try to ex- help people understand, consider other people's feelings. Um, for one thing, I don't think it would be very effective, right. <laughs> you know, because so we could have this entire discussion about what's effective evangelism, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, is it really going to be effective to, to walk up to a refugee right pretty much during the beginning of your relationship and say, you know, you really need to know this Jesus? <laughs> um, is that going to be more effective, or is it instead going to be a three-year process whereby you get to know this person, you get to know how they think, you do things for them, you, you do some sacrificial things for them, and you walk by their side? And then maybe in three years' time, they will be willing to have a conversation about God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other problem. I don't know if, if American Christians have that kind of patience, right? <laughs> that kind of perseverance to actually, you know, say, I'm, I'm, I'm in this for the relationship and because I really care about the person. I, I fear that if you go with the other approach, you don't really care about that person. You care about a notch on your belt or, you know, some other standard of measure that you're using for how good of a disciple you are yeah um, so to me that just to me this is just a it, it's it's a completely different i use a completely different paradigm you know, as a result. Yeah. can i say something else no please um, go ahead i just want to explain something i think this is helpful um i think there is i think i've used this word i think the church has an obligation but i think our country has an obligation as well to take care of more refugees than we do. And I, I don't think people realize, um, I threw out that number at the very beginning, that there are 21 and a half million refugees in the world. Okay. So America has been taking for the last 10 years, approximately only 70,000 a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which in comparison, first of all, to the larger number of how many refugees there actually are is, is a tiny fraction uh, in terms of how many we could take and and help is a small fraction. And compared, especially when you talk about the Syrian crisis, when you consider the fact that Germany has taken in over a million and who've just come across the border, and yes, Germany has struggled to do that, and they probably are at their maximum, but they've taken in a million. And when you consider that we're fighting over you know, 15,000 Syrian refugees. I think that that makes me sad. Hmm. You know, that really, to me, there is a, 
beyond this gospel urgency, there's also just this humanitarian urgency. And the U.S. has not done a good job in responding to this one. You know, I think to date the number is, uh, I had this at hand, but we've settled around 15,000 Syrians since the crisis started. Mm-hmm. You know, That's a terrible number when you consider how many Syrian refugees there are. So we mentioned Germany with over a million. Turkey has two and a half million Syrian refugees in their country. Lebanon, which I visited last month, has one and a half million refugees from Syria. And they're a country of only four and a half million to begin with. Yeah. So uh, I just think, man, when you really step back and you go, what is the what would be the right thing for a Christian to do? You know, I mean, just now we're just pulling back to this whole idea of, you know, Jesus parable, the sheep of the goats. You did it for the least, you did it for me. That whole question. If you bring that scripture into this, we're doing a terrible job, you know, of caring for the least of these. Yeah. So I just I just kind of feel like it's important to say that as well because sometimes, you know, history presents you with an opportunity to do something uh, or presents you with a demand. And I just feel like Sometimes it's just really obvious, gosh, something needs to be done. And, yeah. and here we are, we're still having debates over whether a terrorist might slip in among them. Yeah. You know, but. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. And as, I, as I'm like trying to process all of this, and like these are huge issues that are happening in the world today, and I want to do good as a Christian. Like I know, I know that God wants me to care for the least of these. Like, I know that that's in the Bible, and I know that that's part of my faith, and it's something that I genuinely desire to do, but deep down inside, there, there is that fear. There's that, I don't, want, I don't want my neighborhood to change. I don't want my church to change. I don't want to spend the extra money. I don't want to risk losing the job. Oh, and then on top of all of that, there's all this terrorist stuff. There's this constant battle, even within me, and I get accused of being liberal all the time. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, there's yeah. that battle within me that sure. that's like, I'm scared. And yes, part of it is, yes, there's a terrorist issue, uh, but I'm more scared of a reality that is different than what I'm used to. What would it look like if there were a million refugees that came into <laughs> the United States? Like, that's, a, that's an overwhelming, yeah. terrifying prospect. Right, right. Well, first of all, I'm not going to advocate for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not advocating. I'm just advocating, gosh, you know, um, we could double the number. You know, if we took in 150,000, I think we could do that. So, but yes, I, under, I understand that fear. Um, just as an aside, we took in, we took in a lot of Vietnamese, um, you know, after uh, Saigon fell. We were taking in some massive numbers of Vietnamese refugees for a period of time there. And actually, uh, a lot of churches here in Dallas participated in that. And they have good memories of that, which is interesting because some people who remember that positively are not being as positive about Syrians, but um, which is an interesting phenomenon. I just think we forget. But, you know, to go back to your original original struggle, uh, I totally get that struggle. And I think there was a time in my life where I was the same way, uh, where I really, that might have predominated. But once I allowed myself the freedom to, and forced myself to kind of open up and listen 
to a refugee and start to listen to them and, and start to involve myself in their lives, I just found something happening inside of me. Um, I found my faith really growing. Well, the very first refugee I ever sponsored, okay, was a young man from Eritrea, and he was a part of the Ethiopian, he was part of a the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is, you know, has some traditions and really rich traditions and liturgies that I was not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And he so much loved Jesus, but in such a different way than I'd ever experienced. Just to see his devotion and him talking about Jesus, gosh, that really, it really deepened my faith. It really, I just found it to be spiritually enriching. What I have trained myself to do is, is to force myself to, you know, to do the things that I wouldn't naturally do. I wouldn't naturally go up and start speaking to someone from another culture. I'm, I'm an introvert. But I find that when I force myself to go and talk to a Syrian or I go talk to an Iraqi, and even if we have to struggle with language, I always find it being a boost to my spirit. I find God working in it, right? Yeah. And so I guess what I'm saying is I've learned to see the gift in it, but there is this natural human tendency you have to fight through first. And that tendency is just, it's kind of instinctual in all of us that you want to go for someone who speaks English, you can understand because <laughs> it's just, it's easier. I mean, that's part of the problem is yeah. working with refugees. There is a little, it's a little bit tough. You have to fight through the initial difficulty, but when you break through on the other side, man, it is rich. It is rich. and It's great. That's my promise. <laughs> Wes, uh, we have barely scratched the surface. I know. I yeah. know. Uh, if uh, just, just uh, we'll, we'll, we'll include some uh, links and some okay. articles and things like that in the show notes for, for follow-up. Okay. Thank you so okay. much for sure. sharing your time with us, your passion with us. Um, can, I, can I promote my book? Please do, yeah. I wrote a book um, called Jesus Was a Refugee. And it is really designed as a Bible study. It's, it's six chapters. I, I originally conceived it as a, a Lenten Bible study that you can do with the Sunday school uh, very easily. It's, it's pretty easy, but each chapter walks you through a different part of the refugee process. So if you read it from front to end, then you, you, you find out how does someone end up in a camp and how does someone end up in the U.S. And gonna, so it walks you through all the practicalities. But there's all, it also walks you through accompanying scripture and then tells stories along the way. So it's available on lulu.com. And if you'll just go to lulu.com and put in search Jesus with a refugee, you'll find it. It's only five bucks plus shipping and handling. But um, RST uses it when they go out and visit churches. Um, and it's a good conversation starter. There's nothing controversial in it or political mm-hmm. it's a it's just an introduction to the refugee process and it covers some of the things we just didn't have time to get to in the podcast well i really appreciate it and we will be sure to include a link directly to the book in the show notes so that you have easy access to it guys Wes, we've got to have you back on okay i'm happy so to. I, w- so I would much. love to, to talk to you more about stuff you're just uh 
a great man, and I feel um, challenged and inspired. And just, again, thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. I have to be honest. Wes has really challenged my thinking on lots of things concerning immigration and the refugee crisis. And the Lord is still working on my heart. Um, He's still helping me deal with my own fears. He's still working through my own prejudices. Like many of you, I want to learn to love unconditionally. But honestly, sometimes I struggle. This is a big issue. So let's continue the conversation at facebook.com slash productiveministry.org or on Twitter at Prod Ministry. That's P-R-O-D Ministry. When you tweet, use the hashtag Productive Ministry. Today's show was produced by Timothy Jenkins. The Productive Ministry podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are served. Wherever you listen, please rate, review, subscribe. This helps us. And as a reminder, complete show notes, including links to resources mentioned in this episode, and a link to Wes's book, Jesus Was a Refugee, can be found at our website at ProductiveMinistry.org. Guys, this is a really important topic. We hope that you share this episode. We hope that you talk about this episode. We'd love to talk to you about it. This has been a production of Rumble Media, LLC. And as always, we hope you have a productive week.